It's Ruby Fields, Ritalin on Triple J, Dr. Carl and Dr. Linda with you as we talk science. How are you doing, Carl? I am, and I'm going to make you jealous by showing you this bit of paper. What's it got written on uh, it? It is a bit of paper. It's and a printer. It's a fancy, yeah. good fancy paper, actually. It's all <laughs> colourful, and it says, Summer 2018, hot ticket. It's gold, it's red, it's black, and then it says, Parker Solar Probe, a mission to touch the sun. And my name is going this there. This participation certificate is presented to Carl. Yes, so my name, um, all 16 letters of it, Carl Krushelnitsky, will get put it onto will get put onto a memory stick, which will then get shoved into the spacecraft, which is going to become the closest spacecraft we've ever had that gets close to the sun. And so anybody can do it. Just look up Parker Space Probe and you've got till tomorrow, the 27th. That's American tomorrow. So you've got 27th and a half to do it. And you can have your name. I've had my name on spacecraft going to Mars and Jupiter and Saturn and Titan. Costs you nothing. Um, costs nothing. Costs nothing. Hey, this girl loves a bargain. <laughs> Yes, and okay, so that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, the bushfires are around Sydney at the moment. I had the weird experience of looking out over the ocean this morning and seeing the reflection of the sun, not as white silver, but with a tinge of red while smelling smoke in the air. So, yes, it's bushfire season-ish. Mm. This is late. Okay, that's it. Well, there you go. Congratulations. Your mission to touch the sun. I'll give you your hot ticket back. I shall kiss the sun, or at least, well, my, my memory stick will. Yeah, that's right. Hey, give us a call if you've got a science question, one three hundred O triple five three six. Let's get into it. Joanne from Oxley, you are kicking Hello. the science hour. Hi, what's your question? Hey, doctors. Um, I was wondering, why does meat keep better in a chest freezer than a regular freezer? Ah, so do you have one of each or have you noticed this over time? Uh, well, I want to buy a chest freezer because I'm finding that I don't eat the meat that's in my current freezer within that three-month period. Mm -hmm. So I'm chucking it out at the moment. So I want to buy a chest freezer and see why it's better. Hold um, on, so what is a chest freezer? Uh, is, Joanne, is it one that you access from the top? Yes, exactly, Carl. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you've got this box sitting in your house and you open up the lid and then you're looking down and there's all this meat in there or whatever yeah. you want to freeze and you just shove something in or take it out. That's a chest freezer. The normal freezer has a front opening door and then what you do is the experiment of get a whole bunch of candles and put them on the floor around where the fridge is and as soon as you open either the fridge or the freezer door, suddenly the candles all start flickering as all the cools goes flowing away. And so um, the right way to do it is to think, I know what I want out of the fridge, I'm going to go to the fridge, open the door, get it, rather than open the door, think for some inspiration. Mm, <laughs> I do that. I'm waiting for something to come. Okay, <laughs> well, in that case, your fridge will then go through greater swings. And if you've got some food which is just on the borderline of going bad from bacterial invasion, because it warms up just a little bit more, it's just more likely to go bad. So, Joanne, I'm not sure. But I'm thinking that the chest freezer is optimised to keep your stuff not at uh, room temperature, not plus four in the regular freeze in a regular fridge, but minus eighteen, which is what they want in a freezer. But it stays there rock solid. You you open the door at the top, and none of the cold air is going to go away, and so it's not going to go from minus yeah. eighteen up to minus ten and then back down again. I think that's what we're talking about. And also, and how long? Hmm. Sorry. How long does it does meat keep in the chest freezer? Ah, uh, that Would I you don't know? know. No, no, no. Okay. Um, Choice magazine, and there'd be probably some meat board that'd tell you about that as well. <laughs> okay. Thank <laughs> the you. The meat board. Called, no worries. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Linda. Bye. Annie from Newcastle. What is your science question? Hi, Dr. Carl. Hi, Dr. Linda. Dr. Annie. <laughs> 
Um, so I have a friend in Canada and we're always having the debate on if the cold or the heat will kill you more easier. I'm of the opinion that you can be killed by the heat just as easy as the cold, but he thinks that the cold can kill you way easier. By easy, do you mean in terms of personal comfort to yourself as you die or do you mean quick, more quickly over a period of time or do you mean by more degrees away from 37 degrees? So will 47 kill you faster than 27? It, it, it all depends. Uh, it's complicated. So with regard to freezing... Um, you can go into hypothermia and it doesn't take long to do it. So I've been in the Antarctic where you jump into the water at minus 1.8 degrees centigrade and I found myself going into, I was only in that water for maybe 20 seconds. My daughter and I both went into reflex shivering about an hour later for 20 minutes and we couldn't stop it. And so what happens in hypothermia as your core temperature drops and I know that even swimming in Sydney in the pool in winter, I undergo very mild hypothermia because I love chocolate and coffee together. And so I came back from the pool and I was going to have a shower coffee. And my daughter, God bless her, gave me some coffee and she gave me the chocolate. And I went up into the shower. And what you do is you put the chocolate in your mouth and then you let it melt by itself without touching it. I had been in the water for about 25 minutes in the middle of winter. It wouldn't melt. Wow. It wouldn't melt because I dropped from 37 to maybe 35, ah, 36. Ah. So when you go down to about 34, 33, you begin to get dopey. And I can say, Anne, you're in the water, grab my hand and I'll pull you out. And your core temperature is 34, not 37. And you can't do it. And so you're in a dreamlike state where drifting off and dying doesn't really bother you, so you've got to be rescued. Whereas if it's hot, you go, God damn, I'm sweating everywhere. This is terrible. I'm getting dry in my mouth. It's really, it's, it's an uncomfortable death. So a hypothermic death is probably a better one. You see. But what about which one would be quicker? Uh, in, in time. I reckon. Uh, I reckon the, the hypothermia one. Oh, no, no, that, that's unfair too. There's an old saying in casualty, and I quote, you're not dead until you are warm and dead. So somebody comes in, they've been in water for a long time, their core temperature is low, they're not breathing. You listen to the stethoscope, you pick nothing up. You put an ECG, you get nothing. You still have to warm them up. And often, not often, sometimes, they will gradually kick back into a heart rate and breathing again. So it could take you half a day, or in the case of Captain America, since the end of Second World War till the present, and you're still not dead. So I think uh, so that, that's complicated too mm. because you're not dead until you're warm and dead. I just want to know who wins the bet. How bad you know, friends? It's complicated. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you anyway. I'm sure we'll just keep debating about it for, for a long time. Yeah. Then. We're buried up on hypothermia. It's a weird and strange topic. Yeah, okay. Thank you for your call, Annie. one three hundred o triple five three six. Let's head to Diamond Creek. Bailey, what's your question? Yeah, good day, mate. I was just wondering um, if you built like an artificial ring, like ten meters above the equator or the north to south pole, like around the whole Earth, would it rotate around the Earth like Saturn's rings, or would it like roll around on like you know each point of contact around the whole Earth and throw the Earth out of axis, or would it just like fly away and slip off the Earth? Okay, so let's pick one above the equator. How high above the equator? Oh, like 50 metres or 100 metres. Or, or 20 metres or something. Okay, yeah. I'm going to tell you a deep and fundamental truth. You ready for it? I learned this from XKCD. It's easy to get into space, comma, it's hard to stay there.
Right. So Virgin America has just retested their Virgin spacecraft for putting people into orbit. And they'll fly up to, uh, not into orbit, into space. And they're going to fly up there with a relatively small spacecraft, kiss the edge of space, and then come back down again. That's easy. But if you want to stay there, you need a much bigger spacecraft because most of it is fuel. Why? Because you need that horizontal velocity. Because up where the International Space Station is, the gravity is still 90% of what it is down here. And the way they get around it is that they're always falling yeah, and they're, they're always, always missing falling, the earth. Yeah. So in one second, they'll go horizontally seven kilometres and in that one second, they'll fall four and a half metres and the earth curves four and a half yeah. metres in that seven kilometres. So your ring would stay up if you moved it at, say, twenty, uh, say 30,000 kilometres an hour. Right, yeah. so right. they have to be spinning. It have to be yeah, thirty thousand kilometers. I'm, I'm just guessing because it's twenty eight thousand eight hundred at the International Space Station. Ninety percent. Okay, make it thirty two thousand kilometers an hour. Mate, it'd be going like crazy. That's many times faster than the speed of sound. Uh, heat would get. You'd have to put it in a little vacuum chamber so it wouldn't overheat. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So it'd, it'd just be not possible. Uh, mate, the American Air Force has a motto: with enough energy, a pig will fly. Throw enough money <laughs> at it, you can make it work. Yeah. <laughs> That is your, uh, that's your task for your life, Bailey. <laughs> Huge task. Hey, Kelly from Narrabeen, what is your science question this morning? Um, my, this is actually from my husband. Um, he's got a hypothetical question. If you were to fall into a hole that was never ending, how would you die? Would it be starvation, dehydration, or would the sheer force of you falling kill you? I reckon starvation. Starvation. Boredom. Yeah, b- boredom. Um, so w- when you're falling, it's the same as being in zero gravity, which is what the people on the International Space Station experience because they're always falling. So there's no forces on the body. Oh, actually, no, no, hang on. Oh, oh, yeah, that's correct. But I'm going to disagree with you, Linda. So you can go without food. The world record for somebody going without food is one year and 17 days. What were they living on? Um... 200 kilograms of fat. They were burning it up. Now, hang on. They start off at 220 kilograms. They went down to 80. Don't do this. It's really dangerous. A lot of people who try it end up dying from heart failure uh, because of potassium ratio has gone wrong or their gut swallows itself because it's not having enough activity. Was this a weight loss thing? Why did this person do this? Um, it's in my ABC homepage. You can find the story there. Look up ABC on Google, Dr. Carl and weight loss. And so... Back in 1980-something, this guy who was sick of being 220 kilograms went to the Royal Infirmary in some Scottish hospital uh, and he said, look, I'm sick of being fat, I'm not going to eat. And he said, this could be dangerous. He said, I'm going to do it anyway, either you look after me or not. So what happened was that his potassium levels went so low that his heart was in danger of stopping, so they gave him some supplements of potassium. He did have potassium supplements. They did give him vitamin supplements, but he ate zero food. His blood sugar level went so low that if you and I were at that blood sugar level, we'd be really dopey, but he survived. He had one bowel motion roughly every 43 days, and from he went down from 220 kilograms to about 82 and then climbed back up to 87. He stayed there for a long time. That's really, really dangerous. So the point is, depending on your staff, the average person like you and me, we can survive for at least a week with no problem. A really skinny person, maybe two weeks. The average person, maybe a month without food. Water, three days. Sorry? You just go into heart failure and just die? Uh, you run out of, well, in a long one, you're in that really long starvation, your potassium levels go low because you're losing your potassium. So uh, that's what kills you. In a short one, you die because you haven't got enough energy and I don't know the exact pathway of death. Oh, 
So, st- so, so water is going to kill you. You, you die of thirst in, a f- in, in two or three days. I think I made a mistake with the last question about the ring around, around the, the equator. Yeah, because yeah. uh, on the Twitter feed, please come in to give me answers and point out where I'm wrong. Uh, D-O-C-T-O-R-K-R-L. David B says the earth shouldn't need to spin because the ring shouldn't need to spin because its centre of gravity is the same as the earth. That is true. So providing the ring has enough structural integrity to support itself, it's, if its centre of gravity is exactly matched up, it should just float there and you wouldn't need to spin it. Yes. So our life work for our listener could go ahead then. He there we go. The yes, look, thank you very much for pointing out my mistake. Yes. one three hundred o triple five three six. taking your science questions here on Triple J with Linda Mariano and Dr. Carl. And Dr. Emma from Townsville, you have a question this morning. Hello. Hi, Dr. Carl. How are you? Very well, thank you, Dr. Emma. Um, my question is, um, so I was told years ago that if you go to the fuel browser and fuel up and depress the little handle only halfway, you will actually suck more fuel out than um, you ordinarily would because of some physics thing that if you depressed it fully, it would suck back somehow because of the pressure. Now, I just got told by a mate the other day who used to own a fuel station that that's utter crap. And now I'm like, wow, I've just wasted three years of my life that I'll never get Ah. back. So you go to the fuel bowser, which named after the bowser company, or in America they call it the fuel pump, and you remove the handle, metal handle, and then there's a rubber hose, and then you shove the spouty bit of the handle into your fuel tank, and there's a little handle that you can squeeze. And yeah. so you've only been squeezing it halfway. So it's taking yeah, you ages to uh, fill yeah, your car yeah, up. forever. That's why I always try and go high flow, but I still spend longer filling up, yeah, my car with the high flow than anyone else would do with their normal flow. Okay, I think... Because I think I'm feeding the system. Well, you're paying for the petrol that you bought. Uh, I think there might be a difference between getting it on a cold day and a hot day, but that's microscopic. I think what they're referring to, the people who gave you this advice, was that sometimes you end up with um, air turbulence, which then switches off the flow. And so in some cars, unless you have the nozzle exactly lined up, you'll find it switching off all the time. And so you can just get away with it by either lining up the nozzle perfectly or running it at half flow. And they might have come from that background. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So just keep squeezing it fully from now on. Yes. Burn those liquid hydrocarbons. But we're in a temporary (laughs) state because the very first um, uh, journey ever taken was back in 1880 by Bertha Benz, as in Mercedes-Benz. And she did the first long-range test drive. And there were no fuel stations in those days. And so she had to then find chemists or apothecaries, as they call them in Germany, and buy up their entire stock of dry cleaning fluid. So we've gone from 1880 with zero petrol stations to quite a few now and I reckon that maybe in 20 years there'll be close to zero on the planet as we move over to electric cars so enjoy it for the remaining period of time. Push down that nozzle. I look forward to our will. Thanks very much for asking my question. Dave Dave. from Q, what is your science question this morning? Yeah, hi doctors. Um, I learned something in my motorcycle course that I was told that a motorcycle travelling at 60 kilometres an hour, if I were to hit a car coming the opposite direction at 60 kilometres an hour, the force would still be the equivalent of hitting something stationary. Yes, um, because the car outmasses you so much. So let's take one extreme. You're running at uh, 60 kilometres per hour. You run into a fly. 
Yep. Very little mass. You don't suffer any deceleration that is significant. You do decelerate slightly, but it's ever so small. Suppose you run into a bird. Oh, that hurt, but you're still alive, but you slow down slightly. Run into a bike of exactly the same weight, you will go through a very rapid deceleration equivalent to if it's moving at the same speed, of running into an immovable solid wall. Running into a car at the same speed, your deceleration is greater because you don't slow down from 60 to zero. You slow from 60 to zero and then minus something as you get pushed backwards. So it's actually worse. What if it were two cars to combine, so head on at 60 kilometres? Same as running into a brick wall. Okay, so it doesn't double at all? No, it doesn't double. doesn't ah. double. It just hurts a lot, Dave. Yes. Thank you. one three hundred oh triple five three six. We're talking science. Chris from Scarborough in WA. What is your science question this morning, Chris? Uh, good morning, doctors. My question is, can you get cold sores from a water cooler? So say someone's got oral herpes and they've got a water bottle and they pass on that um, bacteria onto the nozzle. Can you pick that up? Yeah, it's a virus rather than a bacterium. You have to work at it. You, they'd have to put the herpes virus onto the common contact point and then you would then transfer it onto a cut in your lips uh, or you'd run your tongue against it so that way it'd be up against your mucous membrane. You'd have to lick it so it goes straight onto your mucous membrane. Touching it with your skin, the skin would act as a barrier. So from water bottle to water bottle, probably not? The, it, would, it would go into the water bottle. I don't know what the life expectancy is of the herpes virus yeah, out in the say, open. Does it, is, is it, it a like few half seconds? An hour? Or? Don't know. Like I, there was a famous case uh, with regard to a different disease, hepatitis, where the lead runner had hepatitis and then ran past a rose bush in Scandinavia and everybody else out in the woods and everybody else who ran about, uh, past it cut themselves and got infected. But I don't know the... So the virus stayed alive for long enough that they could get infected. I don't know what the life expectancy of the herpes virus is. No. Uh, that would be easy to find. Go to CDC, Centre for Disease Control there in America, and you've got all these nice little checklists, and down there you'll find the life expectancy. If you just get a bit of metho, you should be able to wipe it off and you'll be safe. There we go. Hey, Dan from Wangaratta, we're talking science with you this morning. What is your question? G'day, doctors. My question's about fainting at uh, ceremonies like weddings and uh, Anzac ceremonies. I was just wondering if there's a scientific connection between them. Yeah, uh, yes, there is, Dr. Dan. Look up vasovagal attack, V-A-S-O as in blood vessel, vagal uh, there's a hyphen there, vaso-vagal, V-A-G-A-L, and it refers to the vagus nerve, which runs from your brain to your mouth to your bum and everything else in between. And so it can be stimulated by something and you can have as a side reaction, your blood pressure drops and down you go. So in my case, I have a vasovagal attack when somebody tries to take blood from me. And so all I do is I just lie down and I sense a very slight graying and I don't fall over onto the floor, leaving a big dent in the floor in my head. So, yes, it, it does happen. Look up vasovagal attack. Wait, no. so it's, what is it triggered by? Um, an emotional response to the outside world. You then wrongly trigger the vagus nerve and as part of what it does, it tells the heart to slow down or it tells the blood vessels to open. I don't know the exact mechanics, but either way, you're not getting enough blood flow to your brain, whether it's 
to slow a heart rate or uh, blood vessels uh, stopping the blood from getting to your brain. You're not getting enough blood into your brain and down you go. You might have a sense of graying just for a second and you can just sort of catch yourself. So if you feel yourself fainting, just sort of head for the floor as fast as you can and just lay down flat and bend yourself, bend your legs at the knees and you'll come good in a minute I've or so. I've fainted. Ah, you're truly wonderful, Dr. Linda. I know, I kind of want to. I feel like maybe I'm not feeling the emotions enough. <laughs> I cry at weddings, I don't faint Oh, crying is much better than fainting, honestly. I'll, I'll okay. go for crying. <laughs> hey, let's squeeze in uh, another caller. Kieran from Sydney, what's your question? Hello, sir. I'm wondering, what is the evolutionary purpose for ponies? Like, where do they come from? Uh, I don't know their evolutionary uh, origin, number one. Number two, evolution doesn't have to be perfect. Not, it just has to be good enough. Number three, as an accidental side effect, they're training wheels for horses. Right. That's so, kind of the limit of my knowledge. I'd have to go and look up Encyclopedia Britannica and Wiki on, on ponies to find out if they're a uh, breeding of two sort of horses or how far their evolutionary history goes back. I'm sorry, I failed you. I'll look it up in a break. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Dr. Kieran. Miracle by Churches on Triple J. They're playing Splendor in the Grass. They have side shows as well, Dr. Carl. You could go and see them, have uh, a boogie. Well, I had a really good time at the last Splendor and I discovered the beauty of karaoke. Did you do karaoke at Splendor? Or were you just screaming along to oh, every no, band? No. I was able to get on stage. Who were you on stage with? Me. Uh, what was the song? Addicted to Love? No. I'll, it'll come to me in a little while. It was something. We're talking science, though, this hour here on Triple J. You're with Linda Mariano and Dr. Carl. And your questions coming in on 1300-0555-36. So, Jackie from Adelaide, what is your science question? Yeah, hi. My eight-year-old daughter would like to know why we have fingernails and toenails. Um, once again, evolution doesn't have to be perfect, just good enough. Number two, they're our equivalent of claws, but they're pretty bad. Um, Hugh Jackman tried to get better claws back made of adamantine, but that's a different story. But besides being the sort of shriveled remnants of claws, they have a surprising good use, which is that um, they improve your sensitivity of the pressure pads in your fingertips and toes. So if you don't have the fingernail providing the rigid background above it and you run your fingers across the surface, it feels different. So I'm sure they have other uses as well. So one is protection of the underlying tissue, um, but you just have hard skin. How's that? So firstly, leftover from uh, claws, number two, uh, improved sensitivity when you're touching surfaces. Would it also um, help with feeding? Like think about the stuff that like you'd peel or use your nails for ah, in terms of food? Yeah, but compared to like an animal with real claws, like the, the, the kangaroo can go into its pentapedal gait, put it, then switch itself to supporting its weight on its back, on its tail, centre tail. It grabs you around the neck with the little claws and one or the other of the back legs rips your tummy apart. Your, uh, a bear can do it, a kangaroo can do it, and then you're on your way to death. We, we, there's no way a human could do that to another human, no matter how long they had their fingernails. No matter how much you'd sharpened your talons. <laughs> uh, now, Jasmine from Sydney, uh, what is your science question this morning? Um, I want to know when a girl is on the pill um, and say she skips her period and doesn't have it for four months, what happens to those eggs versus a girl who isn't on the pill and has 12 periods a year as normal? What, what happens to the eggs of the girl who skips them? 
Ah, well, I had to go chasing for my handy advisors that I happen to carry around with me all the time because I'm weak on the latest. You're born with four million... Oh, in the utero, in the uterus, you got four million eggs. At birth, you got 400,000. And during a typical life, you'll have leaving the ovary about 400. Um, when you're on the pill, they don't leave the ovary. They stay inside. And then I'm guessing macrophages, I don't know for sure, go in there and just eat them up. Um, When you've been on a pill for a while and then you go off the pill, you might kick into a normal cycle immediately or it might take you several months or anything in between. And then so the eggs may or may not get absorbed if they don't get released. If they don't get released, then they just get broken down by the, I'm guessing, the macrophages. Is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to know. That that makes sense because I thought they just sort of stored up, but that makes plenty of sense. Mm. (laughs) They just get reabsorbed. And then get recycled. The body's good at that. Cool. Okay. Thanks for that. Thank you, Dr. Thank you for your call, Dr. Jasmine. Now, Dr. Josh in Sale, Victoria. Hey, what's your question? Hi. uh, I've got this ring of dead grass in my front lawn. Um, It looks like there's like a fungus or something or really fine cobwebs. I was just wondering what that is. Ah, I think you've almost got the answer, but it could be other things as well, but you're probably right. So firstly, um, dealing with lawn is really complex and I have actually met a professor of lawn turf from the University of Kentucky. So there's people who's that's their whole job uh and if you go to some of the places where they grow grass it's amazing how it can turn from just this torn up dirty area into luxuriant grass just within days these people know what they're doing i've tried to learn from them i'm pretty hopeless at it number three there's a whole bunch of reasons for the circles you mentioned a very common one a fungus and if you've seen some sort of fine mesh on the surface you could be right it can also be creatures underneath the soil attacking the roots so it's some sort of living creature spreading out leaving behind where they've already had their fill of grass and following the grass as it's there in front of them and breeding on the way because there'll be more grass as the circle gets bigger and they can get up to various size circles you know maybe five ten meters even but so i would see a lawn turf specialist and ask them for advice but you're right it's some sort of living creature attacking the grass Thank you for there your call, are, Josh. Of, are, right. Thank you, Dr. Bye. Josh. Uh, now we've got Dr. Charlotte from Wollongong. Hello, Charlotte. Hi. Hi, Charlotte. Hi. 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 What is your science question this morning? How is electricity made? Um, electricity is electrons moving in a wire combined with an electric field. Now, let's just back off for a bit. Everything is made of, uh, of atoms, gold and iron and Wait. carbon. Wait, I'm talking. Yeah, okay. Everything's made of atoms and you can kind of think of the atoms as having a central core like a sun and little planets going around it or electrons. It, it, it kind of works, right? And if you rip off some of those electrons and then shove them down a wire, then that is what electricity is. If they just keep on going, uh, then it's DC, like in a car. If they go backwards and forwards 50 or 60 times a second, it's AC. But the weird thing is that the electrons move very slowly. It may be a millimetre or so per hour, but the uh, electric field 
this hard one, isn't it, the electric field, it moves at 95.1% of the speed of light in a 12-gauge wire. So when you flick the switch, even though the electrons themselves move very slowly, you can't get into bed before the light goes out because it's like a pipe. You shove an electron in at one end and another one falls out the other end, but the electric field goes very quickly. Now, that's we've got to teach you about atoms. And, Linda, I know this is going to break your heart, but the number of times in Australia, mm-hmm. in every state, that the word atom appears in the official primary school curriculum is zero. Oh, so we might have to change it. We have to change that. Thank you for your mm-hmm. call, Charlotte. Thank you, Dr. Charlotte. Dr. Charlotte? Are you there? Dr. Charlotte's researching it already. She's working on it hard. That's Thank what you, Dr. she's Charlotte. doing. one three hundred oh triple five three six Rouse Hill. We're with Heather. Hello. You've got a science question this morning. Hi. Good morning, doctors. Uh, yeah, quick question about baby spinach. Does it need to be steamed um, or is it perfectly nutritious in a raw state? Oh. Uh, do you have to cook it or can you get the nutrition you want out of it in a raw state? With potatoes, yes. you cannot. With okay. bananas and carrots, you can. With spinach, I definitely don't know. Do you mean cooked bananas? Yeah, so you can cook a banana, you can have it raw. Either way, you get the nutrition. Okay. Potato, only if you cook it. Okay. Ca- carrot, um, both ways. I, do, I don't know with spinach. Um, I'd suspect that you could get the nutrition out of it because... You, so, so the problem is this. You've got to break down the long chains of carbohydrates. A carbohydrate is a sugar and it's a ring with six atoms in it and five of them are carbon atoms. And if you just have two of these rings stuck together, you can call it lactose or sucrose and your gut can break it down really easily. If they're really, really long, sometimes you can break it down and uh, that's in beans and you might do a bit of farting and you might not depending but if it's cellulose you can't break it down now i don't and, and if it's in potatoes you can't break it down so i don't know where the spinach falls into the potato category where you can't break it down or the carrot category where you can i don't know but that's a good question we'll get we'll find the answer for you uh by the next break there we go one three hundred oh triple five three six give us a call if you've got a science question let's squeeze in simon from malmesbury what's your question this morning dr simon dr simon welcome dr simon's hung up oh and yes we are with Dr. Carl, as we always are on a Thursday morning, talking science. And we have a person who works on a golf course. Thank you very much, Dr. Jackson. And it says that the webbing on the grass, we're talking about a circle in the grass, dead on the inside, live outside spreading. The webbing on the grass is called mycelium. It is the vegetative part of a fungus. I work on a golf course. It's a good sign that disease is in the turf. Thank you for Jackson. And I could be wrong about the motorbikes uh, running into each other at various speeds. I'm going to run it past the clever people in physics. Adam Stone tells me that Mythbusters ran that experiment twice with two dr- trucks because they got it wrong the first time. So I am Complicated. Fully, yeah, I'll have an answer for you next week. All right, one three hundred O triple five three six. We are talking science. Simon from Malmesbury in Victoria. I've got you back. What's your science question? <laughs> Good morning, Doctor Car- <clears throat> Doctor Carl and Doctor Everyone listening. I'm a bit concerned uh, about the current search for dark matter and dark energy. Mm. Is it possible that rather than we're not able to find this missing substance, which will make sense of our current cosmological theories, the theories are wrong? We've gone through a lot of different concepts, the Big Bangs, the solid state, the deflationary universe and so on. If our current cosmology theory is saying that there's a lot of matter out there we can't find, 
there's either there's matter there we can't find or the theory is wrong. Might it be time now to start looking at our theory and come up with a new version that explains why there's not as much matter as we thought in the universe? That, that is entirely possible. The thing is that at the moment there is so much evidence for the Big Bang being correct. So the three big ones are that the universe is expanding, that we have the three-degree radiation, the cosmic background radiation left over, and that the hydrogen atom versus helium atom in ratio in the universe is uh, 90%, 10%. And there's a whole lot of other things that we that fit in with the mathematics that we've got. But remember that old motto of the scientists, I hold my theories on the tips of my fingers so the merest breath of fact will blow them away. I think we are heading for something big. So, for example, the standard model, which describes subatomic physics, works really well, apart from the fact that it's wrong when it tells us that neutrinos have zero mass. So you are dead right, Simon. There's something going on. This is a busy time. And scientists are just simply looking for the facts. And one day we'll have the answer. And the two days after that, we'll then have it in some sort of A billion of other questions. And other questions. <laughs> other questions. Uh, Chantel from Pakenham, you have a science question this morning. What is it, Chantel? Hi. Um, about five years ago, I met a random lady who pointed out a dot in my right eye. It looks like a freckle. And she said that it was linked to my liver and liver issues and I was actually hospitalised last year with liver failure and I had no reason why. I'm just wondering if it is a just a coincidence or if it actually is linked to certain parts of your body. Uh, it's a coincidence. It would be lovely. Oh, heavens. Trying to diagnose disease is the big thing in medicine. And any new diagnostic methodology we would just love to go for. And with regard to iridology, we've tried it 15 ways from breakfast and it just doesn't work out. So in this particular case, it was a coincidence. And oh, I, I, did you recover? I heard that as well, actually. What, a little spot in your eye? That eyes? little spot in your eyes are linked to your liver. Yeah, but the, then what about the other spots in your eyes which are linked to your spleen and your foot mm. and your right chamber of look, your... Someone, look, someone told me that in my dance class when I was 14. Right. Um, unfortunately, when we do the science and we go looking at people's eyes and we get the iridologist saying, okay, that's tied to the this, that and the other, and then we go following the person for several years, we do not find the link that they claim. I'm sorry. Okay. No, sorry. I, I hope you've recovered from your liver disease. I did. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Chantel. And now to Charlie in South Australia. What is your science question this morning? How do bubbles float? Ah, because, how, Dr. Charlie, um, they float because of the Archimedes principle and for the same reason that a lump of metal will sink if it's just a solid block, but if you fashion it into a hollow cylinder, into a hollow sphere totally closed, it will float. So Archimedes got it right. He said, if you've got a lump of metal, say 10 grams, it will keep on sinking in water. You put it in some water. It'll sink until it displaces um, 10 grams of water, its own weight. Well, if it's a tiny little block, it's really concentrated. It's just all together. It'll just sort of go clunk. It'll, it'll, you put it into water, it'll displace two cc's of water. It's already underwater. It's not going to displace any more water and it'll just keep on going, falling to the bottom. But if you make it into a large, flat bowl, it still weighs 10 grams, you then push over the edge of your bathtub 10 grams of water and if it happens to be floating, it'll stay floating. The same thing happens with a bubble in air. 
the reason I went through the water analogy is that you tend to think of air being invisible, which it's not, and having no weight. It's actually 1.24 kilograms per cubic metre. But it's the same principle. It floats in air for the same reason that a bit of water, uh, sorry, a bit of metal floats in water if it's made into a hollow structure. Oh, yeah. It's complicated. Look, look up Archimedes, A-R-C-H-I-M-E-D-E-S on Wikipedia. They've got a whole lot of good diagrams. And I'm sure there's some good YouTube videos. Uh, we've actually had Prime Ministers of Australia saying that certain gases are weightless. So don't worry about finding it hard. It is hard. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, now, um, John from Newcastle, you've got a science question this morning. Hey, doctors, how are you doing? Very well, thank you, Dr. John. Um, so I'm a first. Uh, I do a chef as a job. And, um, I've noticed you drive when... a what, sorry? Oh, I'm, I'm a chef as a job. Oh, I'm chef. A, I'm Can you chef. just talk into the microphone? <laughs> yeah, I'm here. Okay, thank okay, you. Go, go on. on. So I'm a chef as, as a job. And so raw food doesn't smell, but you, you cook a bit of food and it smells beautiful. I don't understand why would that, why would that be. Ah, two reasons. Uh, three. Number one, the heat of any chemical reaction increases, it doubles roughly, for every 10 degrees C rise in temperature. In this case, we're looking at molecules of the food being released from the food. So if it's in a freezer down the Antarctic at minus 50, nothing's coming off. If it's at room temperature, a few molecules are coming off. If you've got on a stove, lots of molecules are coming off. That's part one. Part two, in the top of your nose, high up, is an area called the olfactory epithelium, which is about the size of your thumbnail. When the molecules from the food land on this olfactory epithelium, there's about a million nerves which then send impulses to the brain saying, oh, you've just smelt some garlic, onions, whatever you want. So it smells better because there's more molecules, firstly, coming into your olfactory epithelium. So instead of barely smelling anything, you've got this rich um, volume. But secondly, there's a tapestry. There's a whole bunch of different chemicals that you have formed. So you might start off with chemical A and chemical B in the food when it's cold. But when you heat it up, they combine to make a new chemical that wasn't there. And I think, but I'm not sure, this is why a curry tastes better on the second day because the slow chemical reactions have had time to go ahead. Like you do a bolognese and you start eating it at 10 minutes, forget it. Eat it at four hours, whole different thing. So there's more richness of variety of chemicals combined with the fact that there are more chemicals entering your nose. So that's why we always crave the second day pasta. Ah, I've got some today. The morning after you've cooked it. Yes, I've got some pesto waiting for me in the fridge. Actually, I made pesto as well. Really? Oh, we should compare our pestos. Yeah, well, I've also got some uh, baked potatoes in there, which are not as good the second day round, but they were leftovers. I love leftovers. Leftover for me is the highest form of they food. They are very fun. Uh, look, that brings us to the end of the Science Hour for this week. We'll be popping it online as usual at triplej.net.au. Dr. Carl, you're back next week? I'll be back next week. 